gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. that. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. My the remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Love is Blind with the Senior Director of Brand and Events at Seismic, Kitty Brunette. Welcome to Love is Blind. What's up, what's up? Katie, how are you? I'm doing well, how are you? I am doing wonderful. So excited to have you on the show. Excited to chat marketing, brand, content, love and everything in between. <laughs> so why the heck did you pick Love is Blind today? I find Love is Blind to be such a fascinating show, something I would never do, but I drew so many parallels to the marketing, the marketing process with it. I come from a background of Exact Target and Salesforce and lessonly of really building your brand on core values and ha- having people feel that and I feel like if you can build that foundation early on, but while all a company is dating you, it actually can really prove to lead to marriage by buying the software later down the road. So I thought it was a really interesting parallel there. It is one of my favorite parallels that we've ever had on the show, and I'm super excited to dive into it because you're exactly right. It is almost exactly like the buying process, and uh, and we're gonna going to dive real deep into that today. But before we do, tell us a little bit about your role at Seismic. Yeah, so I lead the brand and events team at Seismic. So that includes our events team, which we put on our large annual user conference. We're doing some first-party Seismic-hosted events in the next year and some of our trade shows. We also have our designers on the team. We have video crew, some really fun copywriters that really bring our brand to life. And then we have a brand activation team and social all roll up under me. And yeah. I know it's, well, it seems like a little bit of everything. And I feel like yeah, that's sort of the that's mandate all, these days. All things brand. Yeah. All things brand. And we'll dig way more into that later. Meredith, what the heck is Love is Blind? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's a reality TV show. And it has a wild concept to me. So people who are looking for love get engaged before actually meeting each other in person. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. And again, I would never do this either, Katie, <laughs> like you said. But so how it goes is they have 15 men and 15 women who live in like the same general area. And they come to live in these pods. And then they can date, in quotation marks, by talking to each other through speakers, but never seeing each other. I fell in love with Shayna through a wall, and now I'm gonna go pick her up, give her a kiss. Maybe, or I get punched in the face. 
It was so crazy to me. So I was thinking about this. I'm like, have you ever thought that someone's voice was attractive or like their, you know, their values or their laughter or whatever, you know, so it's all of these other things that they're taking into consideration. So participants can propose at any time if and when a participant says yes, then they can meet their new fiance in person. Will you marry me? <laughs> oh my God, yes. Yes, Cameron. I will marry you. I will be your <laughs> wife. <laughs> the show, so the show follows these relationships right up to the altar in some cases. In some, they don't even show like successful couples, which I think is interesting and something that like Katie, you brought up before this call. Um, but for each season, there's a reunion episode and then they have after the altar episodes. Are we at a point where we can give marriage advice? No. <laughs> you don't what? think? Looking into the, like the background, the production of the show was so also so fascinating because the first season filmed for 38 days and then some couples got married. So they started filming on October 9th in 2018 and weddings were held on November 15th. I cannot imagine like getting to know somebody and being like, yes. And they've spent like literally like 30 hours, they said, on dates. Like, how do you know? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple um, from that season that's still together today. So Married crazy. and still together after 30 days of knowing each other. It's wild. I wonder what the like, you know, success rate is and like how long, you know, but you said they're yeah. still together. That's so crazy. Looking into like, I'm like, do they get paid? Like what? It feels like there should be something else in it for them. So there is like a monetary aspect to it too. So they get $1,000 a week, which is not... You know, it's the stipend. They're all also like still working their full-time day jobs. So they're not like having to take time off. But the rings, resort stays, the weddings, everything else are paid for by the show. Love is blind. I get that. But sometimes love wants to fly first class. Each person is responsible for their own hair, makeup, and clothing. And one girl was like, well, I, I spent $4,000 on that. And it's like, well, that was your choice. <laughs> I was like, that's crazy. I think she tried to sue them too. Anyway, the series was created by Chris Colin, produced by Kinetic Content, and it streams on Netflix. It premiered in February of 2020, primetime pandemic, like people stuck at home watching time. So it got tons of viewership. I've met the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. I've never seen her before. Here, you will choose someone to marry. Hello. Nice to hear from you. Can't say see ya without ever seeing them. If you're ready to find the love of your life, game time. The pods are now open. 30 million households watched the series within four weeks of its launch. And according to Netflix 2020 viewing trend summary, it stayed in the U.S. top 10 for 47 days straight after its release. And this part made me laugh. It was the second longest run of any title that year behind Coco Melon. <laughs> <laughs> and it got some really funny reviews. The best I thought was from this writer, Lucy Mangan of The Guardian, who said, Love is Blind is basically crack or meth. It's crack meth. You'll decide to give it five minutes before bed one night and find yourself still on the sofa as the sun rises on another day. You'll be bleary-eyed and shattered from all of the shouting you've done, the emotional investment you've made, 
the WhatsApp messages you have typed to a specially formed group, and the heartfelt contributions you've made to various internet forums on the subject. It's that good, is what I'm saying. But then she goes on to say that it's like not good from a moral sense and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, it is weirdly addictive. And for me, it's like, there's a cringe factor for sure. I think there's like a voyeuristic, like I want to watch how other people kind of navigate dating and it's super vulnerable and hard. And you're like, you put yourself in their places. This whole process, it's everything sped up, including the honeymoon stage. You know how you tell me this is the best sex of your life? Have you noticed that I don't return the compliment and one thing that I thought was interesting that you brought up earlier, Katie, is that like each episode kind of hangs, has a cliffhanger, right? And so you're waiting for the next episode to come out or to watch, you have to watch the first couple minutes of the next episode. So I'm wondering like how you think about that. Like how, how is that effective at getting people to just keep watching? And also like how you could po possibly use that in like marketing, especially events. You mentioned something about like, you know, kind of using that concept in your work. Yeah, I think it's really It's a really interesting concept. And especially I think events is the easiest place to use it. Or you can have like an integrated strategy where it's come to this webinar. And if you make it to the very end, we'll give you the asset at the end or sign up for this and then you'll get some drip content. Um, so I think that there's a lot of ways that you can you can use a cliffhanger in marketing. I don't really, I don't know. I mean, there's no, like, there's nothing wrong with him. It's just, it's not something I can really put my finger on, I guess. I don't know. I, I this is like throwing me off because now I'm like not feeling good about it. <laughs> and I was feeling really good about it. <laughs> what about like the discomfort aspect? Because like, it is kind of like, ooh, <laughs> like, yeah. I wonder if there's something to that as well as like, because it keeps people watching and is it like, does. you can't look away. So yes. like, what do you think about that as a, as a tool, a marketing tool? That's, that's such an interesting thought. I haven't really thought about that yet, but I think, I mean, I think that there are ways to make your content in engaging enough with your brand to get people like, hooked on it so that way it feels pop culture or more b2c even though it's b2b i i always like to say like when you're marketing you're marketing a human to a human it might be like i'm a, a SaaS company marketing to someone in financial services and those those are two very different personas but ultimately it's a human marketing to a human so how do you connect on that level in addition to the business outcomes too totally i love that do you feel like the idea that that they're dating people that they haven't seen and just getting to know them through conversation and like without the physical thing is enough of a draw or or do they need to get engaged like would we watch this show if they didn't have to get engaged well, such a good question i probably still would cuz i just think it's like cuz if if it didn't end in engagement if it just ended in now we're going to be in a relationship. I still think it's really fascinating to take the visual aspect out of the relationship. Like, can relationships form and last 
only on what you hear and what you're being told. And can you trust that person enough? And is that trust enough to keep them going regardless of what it looks like? I can't remember if I told the story on the show before, but so I met my wife when we were out one night and then our first date, long story short, I was still in the army and I was supposed to go to this thing. We were supposed to go on a date Thursday, but I had to go somewhere. And so, but I was waiting for her to text me back. And so like Thursday rolled around, I was like, I was like, Hey, I bet you're, you know, you've probably been like preparing for the date all week and just like waiting to text me back. But like, we're supposed to go on a date tonight. And she's like, Oh my gosh, I have work. Like I've totally you know, forgot whatever. And I was like, Oh, it's okay. Just when you get off work, we can do like a phone date. Cause I wasn't actually going to be there anyways. And <laughs> so our first date w- w- that we went on was like a three hour phone call. And, uh, no yeah. And so, and see, it's not really like fair to love is blind because we'd already seen each other. So that takes away like all of the mystique. Cause you know, what the other person looks like, yeah, but, but it was a really fun way to like get to know someone where you know you just don't normally do stuff like that and like if you're at like a restaurant like you're thinking about all these other things or you know like if you're on facetime or whatever you're thinking about how you look and how you're eating and you know like what and that stuff is important too but it was really interesting you know and it made me think of of this show where it's like yeah maybe three hours on a phone date is actually like worth 10 dates, you know, then it's like, well, 30 hours worth of talking to someone is like a lot. Like, I'm not saying that you would like, know, but like, yeah. you kind of might, right? I mean, yeah. like if you, if you met your partner and talked to them for 30 hours. Five days in and I know who I want to be my future husband. I can't believe it. It's only been five days. Oh my God, I've had meals in my refrigerator for longer than that. Like, that's crazy. Like, I feel like you probably have a good enough chance in this world to just be like, yeah, we've talked about all the stuff that there is to talk about in terms of like, is our life close enough to going the same direction? And, you know, maybe getting married is a little crazy, but it's not even that far-fetched of an idea for me. When I first saw it, I was like, this is the craziest thing ever. But then like, when you dig into it, you're like, well, it's not, it's not that crazy. I think the first half is, it's not that crazy. I think the fact that they have to go from like seeing each other to get to living together, to getting married within like, I think it's three or four weeks. <laughs> the wedding is in three weeks and on the inside, I'm freaking the f- out. <laughs> okay. A, because I think that planning our wedding is going to be stressful. B, I'm anxious just kind of a, about sharing space in general because I've been alone for a long time. That sounds bad, but it's the truth. It's my truth. I own it. That's the crazy part of like, right? do you, you've got to dig into that. There's so many other factors that come into play. But I, I agree. Like when you, when you have 30 hours on the phone with somebody or on the phone or in a pod with somebody, there's pod. only so much you can talk about without having to go deep. So you kind of have to be vulnerable and open up and talk about those hard things. But you also have to trust that they're telling you the right thing too. And that, they're not just saying something because they want you to hear it. Well, I think, you know, if you're out meeting someone on a date, it's like there could be a million reasons why you want to, you know, go on a date with that person, right? But it's like when you're in a pod being like, should I marry this person? Right. It kind of cuts to the core of the conversation. Yeah. Of like if I had to make a decision, yes or no, that, that it helps that. I absolutely adore you and love you. 
I love you. But I don't. I can't marry you. Um, and I hope that you can appreciate that and respect that decision of mine. Um, yeah. But I think for, for us, I, I think ultimately it's right that like the most interesting part is them getting to know each other. But I do think that you're right that it's like all of the additional pressures and the way that the show is produced and heightened yeah. and how ridiculous people are. Mark is very emotionally available. To me, it's a bit of a red flag. You know, all of that stuff is part of it. You know, it's like if America's Got Talent didn't have anyone who was bad at singing, like, would we still like it? Probably, but it wouldn't be quite as fun. And I think that that's, you know, the same thing with this is like they want to they wanna steer into both sides of, of the equation. But, you know, we love a love story. We love a meet cute. Oh, yeah. So, like, we like Absolutely. that too. Yeah. They did choose all attractive people. Just, just. Yeah, I know. I noticed that as well. <laughs> I mean, one thing, just one thing to, to note. Yeah. Where it's like, you can guarantee they all look like models. So you're going to be married. Oh, that's a, a good point. <laughs> that is a really good point. I didn't think about that. That, yeah, you are, it is being vetted by someone. Yeah, it's, it's a very highly produced show. There are a lot of those external factors that go into it too. But they have seen some success. They have them do like a psychological or something like that evaluation too. So, you know, or at least have a feeling that they're also not crazy. <laughs> right? Or they're, they're just crazy enough yeah. that it makes for good TV. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking about this 30-hour thing. And I was like, okay, 30 hours... If if you if you only had thirty hours and and then you had to choose someone to marry and you had to ask sort of all the right questions, like what would be the ones that you would sort of ask, um, knowing that you only have like this number of sessions, and then you also need to like not only talk about serious stuff because you need to talk about silly stuff and interests and you know whatever whatnot. Do you cook? Um, I do cook. Okay. I do cook. What would you make if we were on a date? Mm, I would probably make either salmon or yeah. I would make like some curry chicken rice. Oh, yes. There we go. Yeah. Now we're do, you, do you cook? Yeah, I do cook. I like a man who can cook. Yeah? Yeah, that's because I, I like to eat. I for you. <laughs> so that's great. Yeah. <laughs> then it got me thinking of like the buying process and that so much of the buying process is about you're seeing like, you know, if you want to go on the first date, and then you earn the second date, and then you earn the third date. And that's, you know, it's similar, similar sort of a process. But if you knew how much time you had, you know, like you, you sort of, you know, do it a different way. Katie, I'm curious, like, as you're thinking about all of this and how it relates to buying, what are some of the things about Love is Blind that you're like, oh, that's a, that's a good idea? Yeah, I think. Like if you knew, we go into that theory. If you knew that you had thirty hours to try to attract somebody to take a demo with you, like what pieces of content would you actually put all your efforts into? Is it a webinar that you can get some live engagement? Is it an in-person event that you're trying to get them to? Is it like a really great designed ebook? Is it a blog post? So if you know that you have 
like 30 hours of attention for them. What is that high quality content that you're going to produce? So that way it's more quality over quantity when you're building your content strategy and building your event strategy. I think that that is an interesting concept. I also just think that you have to know what you're talking about with that person to hook them and get them to want to uh, get engaged with you. Um, I kind of equate getting engaged to taking the demo. So how do you get them to the demo? You have to talk about the values. You have to talk about the things that mean the most to them. So that way you can connect on that human to human level, but also connect on their business outcome. So how can your software make them better at their job so that they have a better life too? And they can see that correlation that like my my quality of life is better because this software is helping me hit my outcomes and I'm spending less time spinning my wheels at work more time for my family, things at home. That's getting very deep, but that's something that I feel like building that foundation with somebody. And then like once you get into that, okay, they've taken the demo. We've gotten engaged. We've seen each other. Now they actually see the product. And so, but in addition to seeing the product, they also have to, you still have to engage with them and be human with them too. So like, what are those touch points of, oh, I'm going to send you swag at this point, or this piece of content is really, will really benefit us. This is like uh, meeting the parents. Um, (laughs) Like here's, here's what's going to solidify the deal because we are giving you these other things too. So I think there's touch points all throughout the journey to think about. Meredith, do you know how much a polar bear weighs? I can guess, and it's going to be wildly inaccurate. <laughs> Two it's enough, tons. It's enough to break the ice. Oh. <laughs> and I think... <laughs> no. and I, <laughs> I was giving you a genuine guess. <laughs> <laughs> so and, yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking about... <laughs> I was thinking about this. So in the first in the first bit of these pod conversations, I was thinking about icebreakers. What's your name? Chelsea. I'm Kwame. Cool name. Thank you. Means born on Saturday. And I I'm, love you know, it. I love I'm, it. You know, I think Saturday is the best day of the week. Agreed. So, hey, Chelsea, tell me what makes you happy. Bringing joy and fulfillment to other people. Okay. Um, growing, learning. I can dig that. Uh, shoes make me happy. <laughs> and I was, so my friend, Sean, shout out to my buddy, Sean, used to actually say that to people, which is hilarious. <laughs> but uh, I was thinking, I was like, you know, there's so much seriousness in business and in like, hey, do you want to get married forever and start a family or do you know do whatever? And Aziz and Zari has a great bit about this about like, imagine if you like if you didn't know that the concept of marriage marriage exists and you're just like walk up to someone and you're like, do you just want to be with me until you die or I die? <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, but anyways, it's so you know, long term commitment, right? is is scary for most people and it's very serious and so you need to sort of like start with an icebreaker and then so much of our content or our marketing stuff is so serious too and we don't have good icebreakers and uh we don't know how much a polar bear weighs so it's like i was thinking about that i'm like you know it's just there's so much of the stuff that we create that has so little levity when even just showing a little bit of that allows you to you know, like break the tension, break the ice, get to get to something that allows them to realize that like, oh, this person, although the topic is serious, is maybe not, you know, a robot and 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 ultimately is going to be more memorable. 
Yeah. That's something we did at Lesson Lee really well. We had Ali Lama was our mascot. I actually have stickers still of him. Oh, yeah. He was everywhere. And so we called our customer community the Lama Nation. Ali Lama sent all of our customer emails. He we made plush llamas. I don't have any of those. And then we like built our culture around like we gave away a golden llama to the like best performing individual that embodied our core values internally. And Kyle is going to be on the podcast later. And I we hand spray painted gold llamas. I don't have any in here, but we oh I do. We hand spray painted these gold llamas, the yes. llamas sold, and then we sent them out to prospects and customers as a campaign and said, award this to your golden llama. So being able to take that piece of your culture and share it with other people was so important. And it helped like that was the levity piece of our brand of like we had so many llama puns. It was really fun to be able to do that. But I think that's a good point. Like being able to bring levity while also still being serious is really important. Yeah. And like when you're talking to someone, if you're to go up to someone at a, I was going to say pumpkin patch, but it's not pumpkin season anymore. A Christmas tree lot. I guess people probably aren't picking people up at Christmas tree lots. But anyways, wherever it is, bar, coffee shop, what have you, the beach, you you need to say something to get their attention, right? But if you yeah. if you know that you're going to go sit down with someone for an hour or a demo call for 15 minutes or or 30 minutes or whatever, you have a little bit more time to sort of like earn the entire next call, right? Is like you can infuse yeah. that in that entire process. But but it needs to, you know, they, we talked about sort of like you, this idea of like you have to match your sales process to your marketing, right? It's like if you have all this fun marketing stuff and then your salespeople are like, like, here's the demo, buy now, you know, whatever. That's not great. Yeah. But in the actual marketing process, like, again, going back to like, if you had 30 hours to commit someone, you know, to convince someone over the course of a quarter, if they're going to spend 30 hours with you, how would you spend your time? Gosh, I would want them to be laughing for at least 10% of the time. Yeah. Right? So how do you make three hours worth of content that's laughable? I don't know. That's like, that's a pretty interesting thing to think about. Or like, you know, if you're taking people on dates, you're like, well, we could go to a movie that's funny, or we could go to a comedy show, or we could go watch, you know, go to the circus or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But you can like introduce stuff like that. But when you're actually just talking yeah. to someone, you can't do any of that stuff. Like you have to be the entertainment. And any, anyways, yeah. it's just another thing of like, when we're making our content, it's just like so much, we don't spend time to like allocate, like, all right. We're going to make 100 hours of content next year. What percentage is going to be funny? Currently yeah. zero, you know? Yeah. I think that's where that's where on our team, we have two brand copywriters that are specific to brand. And they're the people that bring the levity, the puns, the, the personality into our copy. And I think even just starting there, like that's an easy place to start is where in your email copy can you have a little playful fun? Where on your website the places where you're trying to attract people, I think that's a, a really good place to start. But I I think there's a lot to be said in some other other content too. Like maybe your your ads, you try to you A B test ads with something more serious versus something more fun and, and see how that lands. But I think having those brand copywriters that really own the voice and can add, infuse some fun into a lot of the product speak and and all of that is really important. Can I tell two more quick stories about love? Because love is is blind. So 
the first time when I met my wife before we went on the phone date, I there was like two girls and a guy and they were all sitting together and there was one seat open and I just really wanted to sit down. And it was like outdoor on this like patio at this place in Newport Beach. And I went out to go sit down on this thing and there was like water all over it because it was like on the beach and I think it had been raining. And I was like, hey, could I, is anyone sitting here? They're like, no, it's okay. But it's like pretty wet. And I was like, oh, it's okay. I'll turn, turn over the seat. And I turned it over. And the other side is way wetter. <laughs> and, oh, and, so I, <laughs> and I like look up at all of them and I'm like, oh, there's a pretty girl. And I'm like, and I just like sit down and I was like sitting like literally soaked in water. <laughs> but so I was like, how do you all know each other? And they're like, oh, like, oh, they work together. And like, you know, she and I are together. And I was like, oh, they work together. And I was like, it's like, oh, so my name's Ian. So, anyways, that's how I, I met my wife. Was was I was I was like literally oh. sitting in a puddle of water. So, <laughs> anyways, yeah. So we exchanged information. We went on our phone date, and then we were like texting, figuring out the next place to go on our next date. And I was in the army at the time when we were doing this sort of uh, big, sort of shindig type thing. And she said that the moment, like, she knew is like we were texting about stuff, and I made some joke. I was like, yeah, we have this you know, big ceremony and it's freaking killing me because I've been running all running around all day trying to find one of those huge, huge scissors to to cut the thing. And she thought that was super funny. She's like, oh my gosh, like I think this guy is like, you know, whatever, worthy enough to at least get a second date. But it's just one of those things where like I don't even remember saying that. It was like a silly joke, is whatever. And it just always it's one of those things that I always think about with marketing where it's like, especially with writing and writing copy and putting stuff on a website and making little jokes and doing that stuff. We were like, so many of those times, you never get the feedback back from anyone ever that they cared. Like that the getting the gold llama mattered to them. And like, you just have to know in your heart that this is like the right thing that we should be doing for our customers and for our prospects. And like, you just have to commit to that. And for me, it was making a stupid scissors joke. But for for other stuff, it's just like putting in, infusing your marketing with that type of voice, whatever voice you want to have is so important. And if you don't do that, you know, you're you're just not going to stand out or be memorable. Yeah. And I think it's hard to measure it too, which makes people steer away from investing in it sometimes. Right. And I just think it's so important to make that investment early on, especially when you're trying to set yourself apart from your competitors. Your voice is the easiest way to do that. And your ability to relate to people is the easiest way to set yourself apart from competitors because you essentially have the same product. Maybe some of the features are different. It might look a little bit different. It might work a little bit different. But you're selling the same thing. So how do you differentiate yourself? It's through your voice. The brand, it looks nice, like that should capture it, the the visuals. But I think your voice is even more important. Are you a thought leader? Are you bold enough, but humble enough? Can you relate on a human to human level? Are you funny? Do you, are you thoughtful in the way that you're approaching this? I think another thing that we did a lot more pre-pandemic was if we would send gifts to like people's kids or like we would be really thoughtful around if someone really liked the Colts, we would send them a Colts hat as opposed to just sending them like generic seismic swag or lessonly swag. And so it's it's about those moments where like you really can connect with people. And that, that first step is is that brand voice, I think. Any other thoughts on love is blind, Katie? I just think it's so fascinating. And I think 
I, I just think the parallels of also being able to maintain a relationship because yes, you get married at the end, but some of those marriages don't last and some of them do. Love can be blind. My happiness is your happiness. My wife. But it was not for me. My current relationship status is extremely single. And I think that you can also pull that parallel in around continuing what you're doing pre-wedding, pre-signing the deal, post. So like your customer marketing strategy is equally as important as your pre-sales strategy because you have to maintain that. You have to continue that, that relationship continue to help them build that community, give them the support that they need. So I guess we can say that that software sales are like a marriage <laughs> at this point. <laughs> my best friend and I love him and I'm so lucky. It's huge. It's huge and I'm so lucky, thankful. I'm also really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> They Treat, are, you know, and your customers like your like your spouse. Maybe that's not the right thing to say, but <laughs> depends on your marriage. But <laughs> one other thing that Meredith brought up, and I did want to talk about super quick, was cliffhangers. And I think one of the biggest missed opportunities in content is at the end of an article, recommending another article that or or piece of content that like if you like this check this out i think this is like wildly underrated and everything in the world is all these algorithms and all these things in in the media world to tell us you know if you like this you know you like this show or whatever but i think in content sometimes like in the algorithmic stuff is like awesome that's great but sometimes you just need to be prescriptive too and like just choose your best stuff and just put it at the bottom of the article and just be like, hey, if you haven't seen our super duper every single thing you need to know about sales enablement, like go just download that right now because it's the best thing ever. Or not even download because that's kind of a crazy CTA. But it's like, hey, just go check this out because like nine out of 10 people who read this article absolutely love this thing. Like that stuff is just so yeah. powerful. And again, we just don't do it enough. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think about the, all the e-news articles that I get linked to on Instagram and like halfway through, they're like, here are the top three headlines and then you get into this rabbit hole. Why not get into a rabbit hole of sales enablement content? That would be great. That's a yeah. great idea. And you could just go to seismic.com to learn more about that amazing sales enablement content. Exactly. Or you could listen to the Go to Market Magic podcast brought to you by the good people at Seismic. Speaking of seismic and content and strategy, what's your content strategy? How do you think about it? Yeah, so our content strategy is something that we're working on right now. We're we're working on an integrated marketing campaign for next year where we have one top-level theme and then three campaigns that are a little bit more targeted that roll up to that. And then we'll decide what content fills into that. So we know that whatever piece of content we create, whatever event we do it all is going to roll up into one of those three sub-campaigns or the larger thought leadership campaign. I'm really excited about this. We haven't done it yet, but it really helps us set the theme for the year as an events person. It helps give us, us themes for our city tour that we're doing next year and also our big flagship shift event. It just gives us a drumbeat to march to and we're not questioning how to use the content. We can actually create that content rabbit hole because we have similar themes 
throughout the year. So looking forward to having more strategy this year. I love that. I think that that's super modern. I think that the integrated content and event strategy were to build that consistent drumbeat, something we talk about all the time with with Qualified, who's one of our customers, and we do a bunch of series for them. And they, they have this really cool innovate, integrated like branded event series and then all the branded shows that they do that is, has this very like persona-driven content co-creation strategy with their prospects and customers that that stuff is happening like basically every week across multiple different channels for the entire year. And it's all it's all more and more customers and prospects and people telling their stories in different ways every single week. And like, I think that that's super modern and, and, and really different. Like, I mean, this is just really different from how we created content five years ago. It's just, right. it's wholly, it's wholly different. Yeah. In events. Yeah. Because you grew up in events and you were born at a conference, <laughs> but because, <laughs> because the, <laughs> more or less, right. Uh, yeah. And then you took over brand and this is something that we're seeing that's very common with we we talked about you know off air of this like brand content comms community you know some people you know used to be called corporate marketing i don't know if it's still sort of called that sometimes but how did you embrace sort of taking on brand thinking about brand from a bigger picture i think having grown up in the exact target salesforce world events were the em- embodiment of brand it was the way to bring the brand to life so i've been in a brand role in addition to an events role, this my entire career. So it kind of felt pretty natural to pull it into to the fold to be able to have more of a cohesive brand experience. So you're I, I do think event first and I, I'm trying to work on that. But if I think about the events that we're doing, what is this, what is the tone that we're setting? What it, what are the visuals? How are we bringing people in? How are we making them feel that community? And being able to pull all of that into one team, we're more coordinated in our efforts. And there's more brand consistency across all of our channels that we're working on. And we're able to go to market with a more cohesive message. And just it's nice to have more brain power around it to to work off of each other on the collaboration front. But yeah, I, I view all events as the the way to bring a brand to life and the way to get people to really truly connect with it and feel like they're a part of something so that it, I feel like it just really easily goes together. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to Colin Fleming, the SVP of Branded Salesforce, and he's he's going to come on the show. But we were talking about, he was like, yeah, Salesforce is an events company wrapped in a software, right? It's like, Absolutely. Th- that, I, I mean, then that's, I think, you know, how, you know, they they built a lot of stuff that they built. And I think finding those areas of expertise and getting the most mileage out of them, both in person and otherwise. I know that's something y'all have been doing a lot of is, is figuring out ways to engage both in person, but then also, you know, get more mileage out of, out of it. Thinking about, you know, user generated content, thinking about reusing uh, content. How do you, how do you think about it? Yeah. So with the product of Seismic, we're able to add all of our content, especially from our events into our content to the Seismic platform. And reps can use those. They can send them during the sales process. They can use them in digital sales rooms, which is basically a, a, a virtual room of a bunch of different con- curated content for within the sales process. So we reuse a lot of content there. And then we also put most of our recorded events on our website. So that can be used in the future. I think some things that we want to start doing more of are taking our podcast and using more sound bites to fuel our social strategy next year, 
taking our podcast and using it to fuel a webinar strategy for next year. So I think it's all all interconnected there and can be reused. And with this new integrated marketing campaign, we can use a lot of those themes interchangeably and reuse content throughout the year. And and it helps build more of that foundation. How do you think about the ROI of content? And you know, and I say when I say content too, I mean I think that whole like in the past it's been seen as like siloed, but I I like truly believe content and events is the same thing. Like it really like they are yeah. the same thing. Like it's yeah. it's you're teaching people about stuff and you're connecting the community, whether it's on demand, in person, live. Like it's literally the same thing. It should not even be separated, anyways. Yeah. But anyways, how yeah. do you view the ROI of of both content and events? Events. I think our I think it's it's difficult, especially on the brand side, because you just it's not measurable, but I think that when you start looking at the pipeline influenced, you can look at net new pipeline created like post event, post something, post like a seismic hosted event. The content side, there's you can see some ROI just based on people, any gated content that you have. But if it's not gated, it's really hard to tell. But I think like the the biggest one for me, just ROI on brand is a lot of the customer retention, I think that that's a plays a big metric in it because if you're not building a brand that's more like B two C, I like to, I like to compare it to like I love Delta Airlines. That would be my preferred flight if I if it's affordable. Like how can I be the how can Seismic be the Delta Airlines to our customers to where they feel that affinity and that involves having a brand presence and having your brand be known throughout the entire customer life cycle. And so I think that like if they're not bought in on a personal level, then they're more likely to churn. So I, I feel like that's also a metric that I, I keep in mind as well. Anything that you're super excited about for next year or that's in the plans, in the works that you can share? Yeah, I'm, we're doing a, a city tour next year. We're calling it Seismic on Tour. And we're going to four different cities in addition to doing our flagship conference. And we've got some really fun ideas that haven't been solidified yet. I wish I could share around theming of that. And I think we're going to be able to put some playfulness into it. So I'm excited to actually have some... It's like the first iteration of a seismic world or of of seismic world tour, like Salesforce world tours, kind of leading that event and event led strategy there. So I'm excited for us to be able to position ourselves to host more of our own events so we don't have to be at those third party events and and really just be able to tell our story throughout the entire year. So I'm excited for what that's going to bring. Yeah, I, I, I just view this stuff as like your big event is like, you know, the boulder or the, you know, big rock in the in the jar. Yes, and then your smaller events are smaller rocks. And then all of your, you know, digital series and stuff like that are the pebbles. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Final thing before we get out of here, obviously sales enablement is part of marketing. Marketers have to think about it. Content people have to think about it. Y'all are at the epicenter of sales enablement. Anything, any piece of advice for marketers who are, charged with supporting sales enablement? Advice for marketers who are working with sales enablement is just create the content that your sales team is going to use, track it so you can see what customers and prospects are actually viewing, and then iterate on that and build your content strategy for sales enablement around 
what's being used and what people are, what you're seeing reactions to. So with Seismic, you're able to track viewership, how much time people spend in certain assets. And so use that data to help define what kind of content to create for your sales teams. And then go to seismic.com and check out all the great content there because there's a ton. Katie, it's wonderful chatting with you as always. For our listeners, go check out Seismic. Like I said, they got a cool podcast. They got a bunch of other stuff. That's awesome. Send it to your sales team uh, or just learn yourself. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? What's our cliffhanger for today? I don't know. Ooh, join us at the Seismic City Tours if you're interested in learning more about sales enablement. Rock on. I love it. And next episode, we will have an incredible guest that you've never heard of or have you. <laughs> there you go. I, know. I, got, I, got, I got nothing. <laughs> Thanks again, Katie. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I'm out of here. Get me out of here. I'm done. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios. B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.